Peace be upon you, and welcome to this week's edition of Pathway to Peace, a show which takes an analytical look at the current issues and trends affecting us all. Trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and perhaps the noblest of them all, inner peace. At the time of recording, the UN Security Council have passed a resolution to give more aid for Gaza after several days of deliberations. The subsequent weakened language to the resolution did not call for an outright ceasefire in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, prompting a backlash with some describing it as woefully insufficient and nearly meaningless. The resolution merely called for steps to create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities and was adopted with 13 votes in favour, none against, and the United States and Russia abstaining. This watered-down resolution sought to boost aid to Gaza, but has been criticised by some countries as Israel continues its deadly bombardment of Gaza, with the latest attacks reported in the Nusrat refugee camp Khan Yunus. The World Health Organization chief has reiterated his warning that famine is looming in Gaza, as the conflict blocks access to food and other critical supplies. At least 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks since October the 7th. The death toll from Hamas's attacks on Israel stands at nearly 1,140. In this episode of Pathway to Peace, entitled Voices for Peace, Seeking Truth for Lasting Peace, we'll be hearing from numerous academics on the subject of media impartiality and its importance on bringing about an end to the hostilities. In our first interview clip, we hear from Professor Juan Cole, Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan and the Director of the Arab and Muslim American Studies Programme. He provides insights on the concept of neutrality in international conflicts, highlighting that countries can declare themselves neutral politically, but still privately disapprove of one side. He discusses the challenges faced by journalists in maintaining neutrality and how narratives can shape media coverage. Professor Cole also examines the perspectives of different groups within Palestine, the varying views towards Hamas within the Muslim community, and the desire of the extremist Israeli government to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. He believes that the current situation is unsustainable, leading to more violence and displacement. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. Um, Juan, if I can may ask you, could you, could you provide our listeners an overview or introduction of the work you do? Well, I, uh, my position is I'm uh, the Middle East historian at the University of Michigan. Uh, and um, I've written about a, a wide range of things. Uh, I, uh, um, I've written about uh, much of the Middle East, uh, several works on Egypt, for instance, and um, uh, also I've had an interest in Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, uh, and uh, my first book ended up being about South Asia because I had been planning to do some research in Iran and the Iranian revolution of 1979 interfered. Uh, and so I found similar materials to the ones that I had hoped to examine in Iran in, in of all places, Lucknow in, in India. Uh, and so I spent some time in, uh, in India and, and Pakistan doing research on uh, history of North India. Uh, wow. So, um, uh, I was trained, however, as, as an undergraduate uh, in religion, and uh, my PhD is technically in Islamic studies. And uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, I studied both early Islam and modern uh, history. Uh, and so, in recent years, I've gone back to my uh, graduate student interests, and I've uh, been writing uh, some works about early Islam. I wrote a biography of the Prophet Muhammad uh, in 2018, and um, I did an edited book on uh, peace movements in Islam, uh, and I've been writing some journal articles about the historical context that I argue shaped uh, the reception of the Quran. Oh, that's really good. Um, the immense work you've been doing, and especially you have visited um, 
my home country also, which I haven't visited myself, Pakistan, because I was born in the Europe. In Europe, I've never had the chance to go back there. So it's really good to hear from you, Juan, that you have visited um, that very um, country where where my parents are from. But um, my second question to you today is: um, I wanted to ask you. So, how would you, um, for example, define the concept of neutrality? in the context of international relations and how it applies to the conflict which is happening right now in specifically in Palestine? Well, neutrality uh, as a term in international law typically has to do with a stance a country takes uh, during a, um, a war between other countries. So famously, Switzerland uh, typically has declared itself neutral in the uh, in the modern wars, uh, right. and um, in some countries, you know, changed their position over time on neutrality. For instance, in World War One, uh, the Ottoman Empire joined with Austria and Germany uh, against uh, the uh, the British, uh, the Russians, and the French. Mm -hmm. uh, but that went very badly for the Ottomans. They lost, and they lost territory out of out of that. Uh, maelstrom modern Turkey emerged. And so during World War II, uh, the Turkish government adopted a stance of neutrality. Uh, so uh, it's it's um, uh, 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 declining to join in with either side of the belligerents. So, um, so this thing's evolving over time, um, the neutrality, depending on the context, if they are in preference or of it or if they're against something what, what would you say about that well typically with neutrality as as it's been practiced uh diplomatically it's not really a declaration of principles mm -hmm. uh, and so for instance a country might be neutral uh, uh politically between two belligerents but it may you know the diplomats and the people of the country may privately uh, disapprove of one of the of the belligerents. Uh, neutrality would be simply uh, uh, declining to get directly involved okay. and declining to boycott either side. So we can see this with the Ukraine war uh, where um, uh, the Biden administration in the United States has pressured European countries to boycott Russia. And right. most of them have agreed to the extent that they're able to. Uh, but uh, virtually none of the countries in the global south, including in the Middle East, even if they are close partners of the United States, has agreed to boycott Russia. So Turkey won't do it, even though it's in NATO, Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia. None of them have joined this boycott. Uh, and to a large extent, the Middle Eastern countries have declared themselves uh, neutral uh, in the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. They haven't taken a strong side. Yes. So, um, Juan, if you just um, take narrative of the media in today's society. So, um, while reporting um, the conflicts which um, which are happening throughout at, at this moment, how can such an organization maintain neutrality and what challenges do the journalists especially face while providing a balanced coverage of such a complex issue? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, journalistic uh, neutrality is quite a different thing from diplomatic neutrality. Uh, and um, uh, I, th I think, you know, historians, journalists, and others who write about uh, current affairs uh, face difficulties in uh, remaining completely neutral. Everybody is from somewhere, has been shaped by some background that they have, some experiences, education points of view. And uh, and so um, it's famously said that the, the physics of, uh, of uh, Russia and the United States have been the same all along. But if you read the historians uh, in Russia and the United States, they often have differed on, on their perspective on events. Uh, so uh, there is a subjective element to these um, endeavors, which a good historian or a good journalist will try to work against uh, and will be aware of their biases and will uh, uh, use various techniques to attempt to balance things out. Um, but 
they don't always succeed. And, and of course, some of them don't try very hard. Um, and then there are, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult uh, matter when there are differing points of view on an issue uh, to, to report it. Uh, uh, th there, there are some things about the way journalism works that favor one side or another. Mm -hmm. uh, and this has been recognized by students of journalism. There's a Columbia Journalism Review, which writes articles about how journalism uh, sometimes fails in the quest for neutrality. Um, but, you know, in American journalism, uh, you, you, you typically lead with the most important thing in the story. And it's called a pyramid form of journalism where but the most important thing first, second most important thing second, and then you only give background at the very end. So I would argue that the pyramid form of journalism, which is not uh, is not practiced by mm -hmm. uh, all journalists everywhere. I mean, it's, a, it's particularly an American phenomenon, uh, and often uh, the, the French do it differently. But uh, the way that it works in the United States favors power. Uh, because, for instance, if the president says something, then that's the most important thing in the article. He's the president. He's the most powerful man in the world, the American president. So that goes first. But it means that you're going to give primacy uh, to the point of view of the president. Uh, and, for instance, during the Iraq war, the Bush administration used this uh, principle. They knew that that's how journalism works. And so if anything happened, they would immediately have the president uh, pronounce on it. So, you know, when the scandal broke of the Americans keeping Iraqi prisoners uh, in Iraq and at Abu Ghraib and uh, um, making them naked or, or, mm -hmm. or torturing them, uh, that broke on a Thursday evening and President Bush immediately came out and denounced uh, these practices said that these were rogue practices by lower level uh, soldiers. So the the headlines on Friday morning were President Bush denounces torture at Abu Ghraib. So the story wasn't any longer the American torture at Abu Ghraib, it was the president's denunciation of it, which puts a different light on the subject uh, than otherwise would have been there. So I think in the current uh, crisis uh, in the Middle East, um, because uh, Israel is a country uh, and uh, moreover uh, an ally or partner of uh, most uh, uh, North American and European governments, uh, the pronouncements of the Israeli government are given primacy in this pyramid journalism. So um, if the Israelis announce that they have advised the people of Gaza to go to safe zones, uh, and then they have heavily bombed Gaza, the, the Western journalism will lead with the announcement of safe zones, which will, you know, put a certain perspective on the entire reporting uh, that, uh, well, the Israelis did their best to keep people safe. Uh, and they may not go on to note that the Israelis disregarded their own safe zones, bomb places that they promised would be safe and, and so forth. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, sometimes with the best of intentions, uh, journalists end up falling for the narrative of one side or another in these two-sided conflicts, uh, even just because of the forms of journalism that they practice. Interesting. So, if I so if you if you leave with that, um, how does the international community respond to these, um, especially the recent events which are unfortunately have taken place in Palestine, and what um, role does the uh, do the global actors you know play in shaping the trajectory of this great conflict? Well, I think global actors are important uh, in a, a conflict like this, uh, and they do have an effect, but it's not immediate. So, okay. for instance, um, Spain, Belgium, Ireland have all come out uh, uh, despite 
being in the European Union, which has not taken a strong stand on the conflict, um, or has uh, favored the Israeli narrative, uh, those three countries have uh, accused the Israeli government of engaging in war crimes, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very serious accusation. I mean, the prime minister of Israel could be tried for war crimes under European law. Uh, so the Israelis have pushed back against uh, these accusations and there have been uh, diplomatic uh, uh, tiffs over them. But it does have an effect when the prime minister of Spain uh, or Belgium or of Ireland uh, uh, make these criticisms openly and publicly, and they will be making them in European forums as well. Uh, and as more and more countries make these uh, uh, complaints, uh, that puts pressure on the Israelis to uh, uh, shorten their campaign. So it's been clear from reporting that the inner circle of the Israeli government would like this military campaign to go on for two more months or three more months if possible. Uh, but it's unlikely uh, that they'll be able to do so because of the rising opposition in Europe uh, and a great deal of Israeli trade uh, is with Europe, so it matters to them. Uh, and uh, it, there is now reporting also that the Biden administration has uh, behind the scenes informed the Israeli government that it must end this campaign uh, before the uh, the new year starts. And of course, the new year begins the American uh, presidential uh, campaign uh, for 2024. So I think the Biden people want this story off the headlines of the newspapers as they begin campaigning uh, against Mr. Trump. So these international considerations uh, uh, have don't have an immediate effect because apparently uh, the Israelis are able to continue uh, their uh, their campaign uh, in Gaza um, really unhindered uh, for another, as I speak, another three weeks or so. Uh, but they, the, the international atmosphere will force the Israelis ultimately to conclude the campaign. Yes. So, um, Juan, how are the young people of Palestine, you know, engaging with and responding to this very conflict? And what um, role do they play in shaping, for example, the future of this very region? So uh, when you say Palestine, really, we're talking about four uh, or five different groups because you have uh, uh, the Palestinians of the West Bank mm -hmm. uh, who typically had been supporters of the PLO and not of Hamas, which dominates Gaza or dominated Gaza. Uh, and uh, so that's two. And then you have the Palestinians of uh, uh, sort of the Jerusalem, East Jerusalem and uh, surrounding areas, uh, which has been annexed from the West Bank uh, to become part of Israel. Uh, they don't have, they, they didn't accept, they wouldn't accept Israeli citizenship, uh, but they are under Israeli uh, rule there in East Jerusalem and, uh, and nearby areas. And then you have the uh, Israelis of Palestinian heritage uh, who live in Israel proper. Uh, and the fifth group is the expatriate Palestinians who live in Lebanon uh, or uh, uh, Jordan uh, or in Europe and the United States. So the Palestinians in Palestine, the youth are uh, constrained in expressing themselves at this moment. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the, the youth in, in Gaza itself have been displaced uh, of, of the 2.2 million people in Gaza. Uh, uh, over half have been made homeless uh, and uh, often internet is cut off, electricity is cut off, uh, fuel, uh, and, and now there's spread of hunger and disease uh, under these conditions. So. Um, some of them are very brave and able to get out messages. Some of the, some of the journalists or intellectuals have more or less uh, uh, delivered a kind of video uh, uh, 
uh, last words, uh, saying, I, I think I'm probably going to be killed by a bombardment soon. Uh, but here's what I have to say before I go. Um, and uh, but but um, let's face it, they're not in a position to uh, set out an intellectual agenda. Uh, the Palestinians uh, or the Israelis of Palestinian uh, heritage uh, under Israeli rule under in Israel uh, or East Jerusalem are under a gag order. I mean, mm -hmm. basically, if any of them. Uh, says anything on, on on social media or in the press uh, that seems to oppose Israeli policy in Gaza at the moment, uh, they can be arrested. And uh, so they have been um, they have been silenced. Uh, and uh, the ones in the West Bank, I think a lot of them are in a difficult position because uh, and this is true of the ones in Israel are uh, it, it proper. Uh, you know, a lot of Palestinians did not approve of what Hamas did. Uh, it the October seventh attacks, uh, you know, uh, appear to have involved uh, uh, an assault on a music festival where festival goers were were shot down, uh, yes. grandmothers, children uh, were kidnapped or killed. Uh, some twelve hundred people were killed. Uh, probably about two hundred of them were. The military uh, and, you know, in, in international law, one could say, you know, military are uh, every life is precious, but a, a military target is doesn't have the same valence as a civilian one. It's, it's hitting civilians as terrorism. So this was a horrible atrocity. And the, the Palestinian, the Israelis of Palestinian heritage have roundly denounced it. Uh, even um, people who are close to the Muslim Brotherhood and and uh, um, are more on the uh, uh, Muslim uh, uh, pious side uh, in in Israel itself have have roundly condemned Hamas uh, for 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 what they said they, they they said that this is a a blasphemy against Islam what was done uh, that Hamas claims to be an Islamic resistance but Muslims don't behave this way in in Islamic law. Uh, killing non-combatants, uh, children, women, and so forth, is right. not permitted in law in in war, um, and uh, and I think so. There's a lot of ambiguity among, and then the, the Palestinians in the West Bank, many of whom are pro-PLO, uh, also don't approve of Hamas and didn't approve of this attack, which of course has caused the Palestinians endless misery, uh, or has led to it in any case. Uh, so. On the other hand, uh, the uh, the brutality of the Israeli response, which is disproportionate, you know, there's a principle in international law of proportionality, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the Israelis clearly have mounted a disproportionate response, and and some international law experts believe that it is uh, committing war crime, crimes, even possibly the crime of genocide. Uh, and so the, the the young Palestinians uh, feel the pain of their uh, compatriots in in Gaza, uh, and um, to the extent that they're able to speak out, which is not a great extent, uh, yes. some some of them have, and um, there has also been um, military resistance in in some parts of the West Bank. Uh, uh, in 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 support of the people of Gaza, on a very small scale, and and the Israelis have hit it pretty hard. Uh, so, I think the most eloquent spokespeople for uh, the pain of the people of Gaza have been the expatriate Palestinians, the diaspora community in Europe and the United States, mm -hmm. uh, many of whom uh, have been active on social media and have. Um, organized protests uh, in cities and universities. Uh, and in the United States, uh, the establishment has been alarmed by this rise of Palestinian activism and has attempted to silence it. So, uh, you know, despite all of these um, challenges, 
are there any signs of um, hope and you know any positivity which will come out um, for Palestine? And how can they move further to have a um, peaceful future? Well, this is a uh, a conflict that, in many ways, has been going on for over a century, uh, and um, there aren't, I'm afraid to say, signs of it uh, coming to an end anytime soon. Um, the Israeli government that is now in power is the most right-wing and extremist government that Israel has ever seen. It has cabinet mem members who have been convicted of supporting terrorism and incitement to racial violence. Uh, and, um, uh, and then uh, the Hamas leadership, which uh, earlier in its uh, existence uh, had been willing to talk about a 10-year truce, a long-term truce with, uh, with Israel, uh, and uh, had engaged in behind-the-scenes negotiations with Israel through uh, intermediaries such as the Gulf Nation of Qatar. Uh, some of its young militants uh, appear to have adopted ISIL-type tactics of uh, what the uh, the ISIL uh, terrorist organization theorists called uh, uh, beastliness, a tawahush of acting like wild beasts, uh, again, uh, uh, attacking civilians on a large scale and, and, and killing and, and brutalizing them. Uh, so uh, Hamas also went in a, an extremist direction. So these two extremist uh, forces um, uh, are, are uh, destined to be in conflict with one another. Uh, and uh, um, how this all will end is, is not clear. There's also uh, the extremist government in Israel very much wants to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians to find a way to remove them from, from Gaza and the West Bank, uh, perhaps to chase the Palestinians of Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula and make them Egypt's problem, uh, and uh, to chase the Palestinians of the West Bank uh, into Jordan and make them Jordan's problem. Uh, this would be an ethnic cleansing of uh, over 5 million people. And there are Israeli cabinet members who openly uh, talk about the desirability of, of, of these actions. Um, the only real uh, bar to uh, that kind of extreme action is uh, is international opinion. And uh, I think even the Biden administration doesn't want that kind of massive ethnic cleansing to occur. And of course, Egypt and Jordan don't want it because it might be destabilizing for them. Uh, and so the likelihood is that at the end of this uh, conflict, um, the Israelis will try to make a northern buffer zone, a kind of a demilitarized zone, such as you have between the two Koreas uh, in northern Gaza, uh, and refuse to allow people to live there, uh, and to crowd every all the Palestinians into the far south of Gaza. They have destroyed the infrastructure of the uh, Gaza Strip quite, I think, deliberately, in order to make it difficult for people to live there, in hopes that people will vote with their feet and find a way to run away to, uh, uh, to Egypt or, uh, or, or become boat people and go to Europe. Uh, and in the West Bank, the Israeli uh, squatters on Palestinian land are now hundreds of thousands strong and have become quite militant and are backed by ministers in the government. They have been going wilding I've been attacking uh, Palestinian hamlets, uh, shooting them up, uh, uh, stealing more land from them, uh, and uh, putting the local population under pressure. Uh, there isn't a strong indication that uh, the Biden administration uh, has the vision or the courage uh, to actually intervene to settle this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the United States is the one country that could uh, put uh, the conflict on a diplomatic path, but I don't hold out hopes that Washington will do so for domestic political reasons and other reasons. The Biden administration seems to be afraid 
uh, to let too much light get behind it and the uh, between it and the Israeli uh, position. Uh, and so I expect, uh, you know, most human rights organizations had begun talking about an apartheid situation in Israel and Palestine, where the most Palestinians uh, are stateless and don't have basic rights and live under Israeli military rule. I expect this to continue. Um, and um, I don't see any intervening factor that would uh, uh, that would stop it from going on. But of course, it's not sustainable, as October 7th showed. Uh, and so it is an engine for producing more violence and, and more hatred and more displacement. In our second clip, we hear from two of our regular Pathway to Peace presenters, Sabi Iqbal and Melissa Amadi, where they discuss the premise that at times of conflict, there are many different truths available from a wide range of sources, and the role of the media inevitably plays a crucial part in telling the narrative. The presenters examine how important it is to establish the truth in times of conflict. Let's listen to what they have to say on this subject. Uh, maybe talk a little bit more about um, those traditional media outlets. You know, why do you think that there appears to be some mistrust of those um, media outlets? You know, we you said earlier about you know the importance of accurate news, and so where do you go for authentic and accurate news? Yeah, it's a difficult one because I think we're seeing more and more that the full truth is often um, kept out of the mainstream media mm. due to either vested interests or materialistic reasons mm -hmm. or um, ultimately power um, and who is in control of that. But this isn't like, it's not a new thing. It's not since the phenomenon of social media. This has sort of always happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say most major outlets, they have their own agenda depending on how they're funded or whether they do represent a wider political standpoint. Like, mm -hmm. for example, is that is that particular outlet, is it funded by the state? Mm -hmm. um, and in which case, if yes, then that can also be a way of um, an avenue to corruption as well. Um, and it's kind of, if that's what the state wants you to believe, then you have to ask yourself, well, why would the state want me to believe the, mm -hmm. these certain things? Um, and I think also in terms of, like, time of conflict the truth can often be twisted or exaggerated mm. or deliberately questioned actually to such a degree where people wonder actually what is the truth like it makes you doubt yes if the yeah. truth if, if the truth is presented and it makes you doubt it to such a degree then you question yourself almost so i feel like your own conscience all... starts to kick in as yeah. to what you know what what you're able to i suppose understand um uh, are there any kind of subliminal messages you know you start reading yeah. between the lines yep mm -hmm. yeah you're almost second guessing yourself as like even if your gut feeling says that something might be true then you're wondering in your mind yeah, actually is this true anymore um mm. but i feel like to find authentic news people have to you have to use your own wisdom you have to use your own judgment and try your best to seek it from a variety of different places, a variety of sources and outlets, and listening as well to different people. Mm -hmm. um, I would say one thing that's important is speaking to others in whatever circles you're in, so whether it's work, university, or neighbours, um, about current affairs. And that can often give you an alternative perspective as well. And mm -hmm. I think, you know what I was saying before about um, a lot of people can exist quite easily within an echo chamber of the mm. same opinions um and i think having your viewpoints challenged is also quite an important thing especially when it comes to where we get our information from yeah no i agree i think it's really important and that i suppose goes in line with with my work and i'm sure it's uh, you know in terms of teaching as well on your side of work it's important yeah. um when it comes to development you know our kind of personal development our professional development it's important to be continuously learning um and it's mm -hmm. important to kind of have access to the, the the breadth of um knowledge knowledge not just in the form of um you know perhaps textbooks and so on but also like you said opinions and different people's thoughts as well and um yeah. i think for me my line of work i encourage that quite a lot as a chaplain um because it's important to speak to one another um to learn about one another and kind of 
of build those bridges between one another and focus on on things which kind of you know bring you together on that common word it's really really mm-hmm. important um but i think um sometimes it feels as though um the media that we are learning from that we're watching listening to um can sometimes narrow that um that vision that we might have or that view that we might have um of others around us and it's really really important to continuously challenge that learning um and i think that you know today uh with world events as well it's it's important uh, to know uh h- how is it that you know you can make that distinction between um what's accurate perhaps or what's truthful um it's something that is really hard and i think to to start from that starting point to just understand actually it's, it's really quite challenging it's really quite difficult and things which are out there um you know can uh have been manipulated um just because something's gone viral you know it doesn't mean yeah. that it's, it's accurate it doesn't mean that it's it's something which um needs to be kind of accepted it still needs to be challenged and just because something's gone viral because lots of people have looked at it liked it followed it shared it shouldn't mi- therefore be a statement of you know how authentic that news is or authentic that that story is authentic that image is um and i think it can be really really hard to decipher these days uh, in it's terms so of you know what's authentic um you mentioned a little bit about citizen journalism earlier and that you follow some citizen journalists as well do you want to talk a little bit more about that yeah i was just i was just going to add to what you just said firstly about how i feel like as a chaplain and also in teaching as well mm-hmm. they both encourage um the people that they work with whether it's students um or otherwise mm-hmm. to think crit- critically yes so if they're facing a problem or if um, they're having a debate so for me uh, being an RS religious studies teacher before mm-hmm. um, and you're trying to encourage the students to think of okay so you've got one side of the, the argument and you've got another side yeah. and you need to you need to use those critical skills critical yeah. thinking skills in order to actually challenge the other person's opinion mm-hmm. and I think this is such an important thing because you know what we were saying about the echo chamber yeah. it's so easy to think that you know I'm I'm right and you know and you can walk around life thinking that you're always right but actually if you're not if you're not ever challenged or you're not taught to think in a critical way where you're okay with being challenged and actually you know our opinions can change as well by learning about whether it's conflicts or things in the news Mm -hmm. continually we're we're allowed to change our minds as well Mm -hmm. um I think that's such that's quite an important point as well between the discussions it's part of growth isn't it and it's part of that growth mindset yeah. that we're encouraged to have as well it's a really good point Definitely. that you made really appreciate that um so there's reporting um we've talked a little bit about news reports and um for, from different outlets you know so if you think about traditional outlets as well as social media but we're i think we're in a world where i suppose we're worried about this quite a lot um is there such a thing as reporting without an agenda um with no bias or prejudice you know towards certain groups you know is there such a thing as just a plain speaking truth and stating the facts that's such a good question i think it is possible to achieve the truth when there's no other vested interest at play but mm. in in actual the reality of the situation is that this ha- actually hasn't happened yet um mm. so maybe the role of citizen journalist is probably the closest thing or the clearest example right now about authentic on the ground reporting, whether it's in a war zone or otherwise. Um, but even then sometimes, um, you know, positions may be comp- compromised um, depending on, um, you know, what's happened, what's the background or the context or the reason why that person might be recording what's going on. So yeah. I think everything can be manipulated. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the tricky thing. Um, and I think in polarised conflicts where there might be two opposing narratives or, or more than two mm-hmm. or about what's happening on the ground, it is important to establish what the facts are and mm-hmm. take in all the sources of information to get a clearer picture about what's going on from different perspectives. Yeah. Um, I mean, the ideal obviously would be that the facts alone were presented and then people can then make up their own opinion about what is happening. Um, but the reality is that everyone has a bias and the underpinning of the media, it should be running under the principles of absolute justice and absolute mm. truth, um, irrespective of whatever the consequences might be for speaking or reporting the truth. That that should be the underpinning of it. And this mm. is actually something that Islam promotes as well. 
Mm. Um, for for Muslims, we have um, this concept of speaking the straightforward word, or the Arabic term is called okay. Um in This is in chapter 33 of the Holy Quran. Mm. And this basically means, um, you know, when we speak, we should speak honestly, and we should speak accurately. Um, and another important point about this particular concept is that things are said and done appropriately at the right time taking into account um, people's sensitivities or whatever's going on, what is the context of of that particular issue. Yeah. Um, for example, speaking in anger is something that Islam does not promote, for example. Um, no. So that's maybe one example. But the underpinning of it all should be an absolute justice. And especially if someone is scared to speak out on things that perhaps they feel they have little knowledge on, uh, the whole concept of absolute justice is irrespective of whatever ne- perceived negative consequences there might mm. be of someone saying something um, the underpinning of it should be that it is truthful and yeah. accurate. Yeah, no, absolutely and I think it's not just something which is um, uh, only that you find within Islam I think the teachings mm-hmm. of that are in other faiths as well actually um, yeah. you know even in the Ten Commandments um, you know it's mentioned about um, you know not not being dishonest not lying um, and yeah. the importance towards uh, telling the truth and I think that it's really important that actually in terms of um, the structure that Islam provides that it's it's such a blessing that this guidance is there and it's there in the Holy Quran for us um, but actually I think mm-hmm. if we look um, you know more widely as well that Actually, the guidance is there. It's about how we apply it, um, you know, in our day-to-day lives as well. Something that we might see as in terms of religious texts, how do we then apply it to our day-to-day life? And actually what it's calling us to do is is to speak truth, you know, in, in everything that we do. Um, and it's, I think it's really important. Um, and I, I'm glad that you touched upon, like, the point about um, the kind of vested interests that, you know, different organisations might have, which might lead them to have an agenda as well. It's, um, I remember his, um, his holiness, our current Khalifa um, of the Amjia Muslim community, Hazrat Mizamah um mentioning how actually positive change is only possible if one is willing to set aside their personal interests for the greater good and is willing to act fairly at all times. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a foundation, um, you know, that Islam is built on uh, of, of justice, like you've said. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, Who is responsible, do you think, uh, for producing media that we consume and how does the ownership, you know, kind of impact dissemination and output? I think um, those who produce the agenda whether it's private organizations or companies um, and this has always been the case it's not a new thing um, they sort of they, they fuel um, what can be described as a propaganda machine mm. um, of sensationalism or sensationalist news and then this would then in turn promote a particular narrative depending on whatever the interests are and it also depends on where in the world you live as well as mm-hmm. to what sort of um, bias might be at play um, I mean, I know people personally who refuse to engage with any news stemming from a particular individual or corporation because of um, maybe the tabloids or the divisions that it's created or allowed for in society, mm-hmm. um, which is probably an important thing that we should be mindful about where, you know, what's the root source of where our news is coming from. And I think particularly when damaging narratives can become disseminated in the mainstream, whether it's um, about race or culture, Mm. um, which stirs this division on purpose. I think the result is obviously very, very negative. You know, community relations break down. There can become a distrust, which is what we're talking generally of, of um, not just the media, but also of certain communities of people. Mm. And this is all, this all comes back to how things are positioned or framed within the media itself and how, certain stories can be emphasized and highlighted and perhaps other stories might be sidelined or maybe not even reported because of um what the potential issue might be or or who who is the um the oppressed or who might be the the oppressor so i think this is this is something underpinning that that core principle of absolute justice yeah, well. I think that's such a valid point that actually it's not sometimes just about what is reported, it's what doesn't get said, what doesn't get yeah. airtime, what doesn't get published and printed, um, that actually 
sometimes it feels as though there's um, a lot of negativity around certain um, news stories and the, the, there's also a counter narrative and there's also a positive uh, news story you know and actually that gets such little space and time um, and I know um, His Holiness is, uh, you know the Amdi Muslim community uh, the Khalifa the Amdi Muslim community has repeatedly mentioned that actually in his in his speeches and lectures as well um, at different national peace symposiums um, for our final clip, we end with a recording of Dr. Craig Considine, a professor of sociology at Rice University in America, who expresses his admiration for the Amity Muslim community and their global Muslim leader, His Holiness Hazrat Mizra Masroor Ahmed, who has been championing the need for peace over the last two decades. Dr. Considine values his and the community's shared principles of freedom of religion and speech, and considers himself an ally to the community, he further commends His Holiness's rational and balanced approach to the current conflict. He finds inspiration in His Holiness's message of non-violence and reflects on their friendly but awe-inspiring conversation during their last meeting, which left a lasting impression. Let's hear what he had to say. Dr. Craig Considine, based at the Department of Sociology at Rice University, and I'm an author of many interfaith books, and I like to write about Muhammad um, what brings you here today? I'm here because the Emadia community and I share very similar values. Freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, all these things. But in the current climate, we're here because we're passionate about peace building and taking peace seriously and taking nonviolence seriously as potential solutions to some of these problems. So I'm here in principle, but I'm also here as an ally. There is a group of people who would not be very pleased with your presence here today. Um, what motivates you to stand up and still show up? Well, it's my journey for truth. You know, I'm, I'm someone who is on the journey trying to figure out all the mysteries of this world. And the Emadia community and I, I think, are on a very similar journey and that's what it's about for me. It's not, you know, you could be Emedi, you could be Hindu, you could be whatever it might be, but I'm here on principle. And the whole political backdrop is its own thing, but no, I'm here on principle. Thank you. You just heard uh, the words of His Holiness uh, as a global Muslim leader uh, on this crisis in his Friday sermon. What's your reaction? What's going through your mind? Well, if you remember my social media, right after 7 October, I read one of His Holiness's speeches and I posted saying that this was literally the best response, the best speech that I've read. And I'm an avid reader and I was reading what all world leaders were saying. And the reason why I liked it and appreciated it and valued it is because His Holiness isn't pointing fingers at sides. He understands that to move forward, you need someone almost neutral in the middle that is not going to say, you're wrong, you're wrong. No, both sides can be wrong. So he's in the middle. He's, it's rational, it's moderate, and it's balanced. And it's looking at all the figures and getting rid of your, your bias and your tribal affiliations. Right? Earlier, I was talking about peace being the rational end for rational men. His Holiness embodies that. He really does. You've had an opportunity to meet with His Holiness, and you often say this, um, you know, he'll be making statements um, philosophically, theologically, in various capacities about different issues. Is this the first emergency crisis that you've seen His Holiness respond to? And what did you expect going in? Did you think that he would be a little more pro-Muslim or like, did you have a, a certain vision and were you surprised or was it, did you expect that it would be what it ended up being against your previous experience? It, it, it met my expectations for the reasons I mentioned. It was, it was pointing fingers, but not blaming people saying, you need to stop this, you need to stop that. And that, that's 
who he is to me. He is someone who is focused not on the sides, but he's focused on the justice, the big philosophy, the big picture. And that's why I'm here, because it's the same search. It's the same journey to, to be just, to be peaceful, to live in harmony with all people. I mean, this is, san this is sanity to me. This is, these are sane ideas, but we've gotten to a environment now where talking about peace or nonviolence is not even considered part of the solution. And I think His Holiness is fundamentally a man of peace, not only in his words, but as a whole embodiment. Um, are there any uh, memories you have with His Holiness that come to mind? With His Holiness, there are two, three things that really stick out. My first meeting with him was in Houston, and I shared this with some type of Emedea media uh, person. There was like a, a light in the room. It, it, it literally, like when I was looking at him, it felt like the, the room, it was like levitating. We had an environment in there that was just really special. Um, and it really, you know, it makes the, the hairs on your arm kind of stick up. You know, there was a presence. So that was the first impression. And I'm big on first impressions. So I was like, this is incredible. The second one in, in Zion, he caught me off guard when we had our one-on-one. -on -one because the one of the first things he brought up was the dangers of nuclear weapons. And you know, this is obviously something I care about because I'm about peace, but I also don't really dabble with it in my writing or even in my posts. So I took that very seriously. You know, I think he was saying, you, you need to take this more seriously, you know, because we can't even talk about peace if we can't talk because we won't be here, right? And then later in that meeting, it was just so friendly. And it was, you know, he's my elder and I believe in status. And uh, I, would, I don't want to call him a friend, but the conversation we were having, it was like, like you and I have. It's like we're, we're friends. And he was like, you should, he's like, come over to my house. You come to London. I was like, I'd love, I'd love that, you know? So it was, it was lovely and it's always easy here with the Emedea community, and it's because of who I am, and it's because of who you are. We agree on principles. Thank you so yes, much. thank you.